I actually write on the syllabus when I, um, you know, require Shawshank Redemption, I write Shawshank Redemption, you can thank me later um, because that's how I feel about it. Then I love introducing it to students. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talk about the movie The Shawshank Redemption, which debuted in theaters 25 years ago. Andy came to Shawshank Prison in 1947. Why'd you do it? I didn't, since you asked. <laughs> you can fit right in. I must admit, I didn't think much of Andy the first time I laid eyes on him. He had a quiet way about him walk and a talk that just wasn't normal around here. There are places in the world that aren't made out of stone. There's something inside that they can't touch. What are you talking about? Hope. Let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. It's actually an interesting year for film anniversaries. You might recall that in yesterday's episode I talked about Pulp Fiction, which also came out in 1994. And as this podcast season progresses, I'll probably talk about a few other iconic films as they turn 25 or 20 or 30 years old. Shawshank is a particularly fascinating film, not just because it masterfully reinterprets an old Stephen King story, but also because it was kind of a commercial failure that became a cult favorite with the rise of the internet, and particularly the imdb.com film rankings where it has remained at or near number one for more than 20 years now. Joining me in this discussion is screenwriter, novelist, and film producer Kathy Van Cleve. I know Kathy from my stint seven years ago as writer-in-residence at Penn, where Kathy teaches a popular screenwriting class. And Shawshank is a great teaching text for her for a number of reasons. I actually borrowed some of her ideas for a screenwriting class I teach each summer at the Paris Writing Workshop. Our discussion invariably includes a lot of spoilers, so I recommend watching Shawshank if you haven't already before you listen to this. Kathy and I talk about how director Frank Darabont did a masterful job of turning an old Stephen King novella into a screenplay and later a movie. We talk about the fascinating and telling differences between the novella and the movie that resulted and explore why Shawshank is what Kathy calls an upside-down fairy tale. At one point, we discussed Bartleby the Scrivener. Just so you know, that's an old Herman Melville story about a man who is fired from work and doesn't leave. This episode is brought to you by my friends at Airtrex, which allows you to save money and maximize flexibility in planning and booking around the world in multi-stop airfares. Check out their flight planning tools at Airtrex.com. For now, listen in as Kathy Van Cleve and I discuss Shawshank the novella, Shawshank the screenplay, and why Shawshank the movie remains a classic 25 years after it came out. I know you from having... Uh, done a writing residency at Penn a few years ago, and I sat in on your screenwriting class, and I noticed that you taught The Shawshank Redemption. Um, how did you come to teach that script, and, and why do you teach the, the Shawshank Redemption specifically? I teach, um, I think it's a, a master class in screenwriting. It, it's pretty, it's that simple. I, um, I actually had not I read the script before I saw the movie, which is not so atypical for a screenwriting professor, I don't think. Um, and I was I was awed. I was just blown away. And I think everything about it is so strong. I think that it achieves on um, it achieves success on every element without every element of a screenplay. I think it, uh, in terms of its craft. I think it's extraordinary in terms of the voice of the writer. It's it, it's wonderful. And I think it has a big, you know, thematic um, 
resonance that that is just wonderful to teach. I actually write on the syllabus when I, um, you know, require Shawshank Redemption. I write Shawshank Redemption. You can thank me later um, because that's how I feel about it. Then I love introducing it to students. And do you find that often that sometimes your students haven't seen the movie? They often, you know, it's a self-selecting group of of kids usually, and they have heard of it. Not everyone has seen it. And also some students do take screenwriting specifically just because they think it's, you know, sounds cool or sounds easy, <laughs> actually, I think. Um, and so they're surprised by it and they they don't know it at all. And also it's an old, you know, for them, it's a super old movie at this point. Um, so, you know, it's, it's older than most, than all of them. Actually, it's 25 years old. So, so it's not so strange if they haven't seen it. This is the 25th anniversary, which makes, yes. it, which makes it sort of interesting to talk about. Now, uh, I want to get into the specifics of story and why it is so appealing in a second. But do you remember the first time you saw the movie? I do. I do. And um, I'm, I feel lucky that I'm the kind of person who still can experience, despite teaching it for years and working in the industry, I'm still a pretty you know, basic mainstream consumer of entertainment. And when I saw that, I, I remember just sitting in the theater and just, and not leaving, you know, like way past the credits, like, like when the people come in and start cleaning, you know, the aisles, I was still there because I did, you know, I, the, I, even though I knew it was coming, I knew the whole thing about the poster was coming. I just, I just, couldn't I was just totally transfixed. Absolutely. It's interesting because obviously this podcast will be full of spoiler alerts because you can't, you know, the poster and what it hides is such an important twist in the movie. We can't really not talk about this. So for people listening, if you haven't seen the movie, um, you might want to watch the movie before you listen to this conversation. But you were talking about how you, you just you you um are an old school uh, consumer of movies and, and fan of movies. And this was an interesting story, The Shawshank Redemption, because it wasn't super popular 25 years ago when it came out in the commercial sense. But then an interesting subplot to the story is that when the Internet Movie Database came out in 1996, it almost instantly ranked number one in the fan rankings. And some people said, oh, well, that's just a flash in the pan. It's a pretty new movie. And for the last 25 years, it's always been in the top five, top 10, if not number one, among the top 250 movies of all time on the Internet New Movie Database. So there really is something about this movie that people just like, regardless of critics or people trying to frame it as a great movie. That There is something that people really respond to in this movie. And... In a way, it's a hard movie to describe. It's a movie that takes place in a prison, but is sort of about friendship and is sort of character driven. And we don't really know that it's an escape movie until late in the movie. So in a concrete sense, why do you think this movie is so appealing? I actually have a whole theory about this after teaching it so much. And I didn't have it originally, but it's developed over the years. And essentially, it's this. I think it's an upside down fairy tale. So I think that for all the reasons that we like fairy tales... And you know this is just, this is that except that it's it's flipped upside down. Um, you know our Prince Charming Andy Dufresne right is not Prince Charming in the beginning. And if, and or actually let me rephrase it. I believe all the tropes of a fairy tale right that you that to think if you start at the end you live happily ever after on an island. I like to believe that Red and Andy are still in Mexico. You know looking out at the beach. I really I. I believe that. I also think that um, in it's actually kind of he's an innocent man, you know, Andy, the character of Andy Dufresne. And this is what I mean about it being inverted. 
he's and then it's when all hope is lost he he basically is the kind of person he's a, he's like not a not a princess in any way he's extremely calculating he's extremely he's the opposite of impetuous he's the opposite of of you know kind of, again these stereotypes of what we think the 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 princess in the castle is going to be and and he goes to this stone castle this stone building right and it feels to me that he's He's calculating all the time and he has this hedge in place and the hedge is that he's going to, um, he believes certainly for the first up until Tommy gets killed, Andy Dufresne believes that, you know, goodness is going to win out. He's innocent. It's going to be discovered if he just bides his time. And he has that chance when Tommy admits, you know, Tommy says like, wait a second, I know who actually killed the golf pro and his wife. And then when the warden, I'm sorry, there are spoilers all over the place right now. Right, right. But uh, when the warden intervenes and um, quashes all hope, and hope is such a big theme in this story, obviously, uh, that's when Andy's like hedge that he didn't want to indulge, right? The hedge. He has, he can't get out on his own merits. The justice, this is not a fairy tale world where justice is going to win out. It's actually the opposite, right? The warden's going to seem to win. Um, so he enacts this this plan that he's put in motion years before as a hedge again, um, and he escapes. And then he makes it so that his you know platonic um, partner, Red, joins him. I just love it. <laughs> That's- yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of stuff. It's it's interesting that you bring up Tommy because it feels like Tommy and then Brooks are these mini dramas within the main movie that help illustrate different lessons about Andy and Red, uh, and that's that's stuff that we can go back to. I also think it's interesting of, of like sort of how modest Andy's dream is. You know, um, he, he there's just something very simple about his ambitions um, that we that we tend to identify with. Absolutely. Well, he's he's so you know I was I was listening to and reading you know about the movie in preparation for this conversation, and I just you know they were saying like oh he's a Christ-like figure and blah blah blah, and I, I just I didn't see that. I I saw him as you uh, he, he is he there is a simplicity in what he wants, and that's better explained actually in the novella. You know um, that that at, after being in prison for all those years that he just doesn't think it's too much to ask to live on the beach. Um, But I think that with him, he's such a remarkable, like, remember Bartleby the Scrivener? Did you ever read that, the short story from Melville? Sure. What's that famous line? Is it, I prefer not? Is that the line? I prefer not to. Yeah, exactly. I prefer not. I prefer not. And for some, you know, these characters in literature and movies and dramas that have they're just going to come at it differently. You know, he says during his trial, like one of the lines that's from the story and in the movie, you know, when the DA is pressing him and says, well, isn't that, isn't that convenient? And he says, well, I find it decidedly inconvenient that it was murdered or something because, um, because I don't have any proof that I didn't, you know, kill my wife and her lover. Um, It's just, he's just one of those guys. He won't get riled. He's, he's, he's so courageous in this really, simple way it's it's you know he takes all the pretense off of it it seems like to me like even when he goes up to the warden on the roof or not the the guard you know and says do you trust your wife it's amazing it's just who does nobody would do that nobody and he just does it because that's he has this plan and i, I 
Is that oh. is that how he's Bartleby like? Like that there's some there's no real uh, theatrical or mi- misdirection with him. He just states things very simply. Yes, it's the difference with Bartleby and Andy Dufresne. I think is Andy does let himself hope, hmm. and I I get the sense. And that there's not a I don't want to say childishness, but there's a vulnerability with that, right? The hope, the hope that he's hmm. going to be innocent as he knows himself to be. Um, I have this sense. I mean, again, I haven't read Bartleby for years, but it was just one of those characterizations that stuck with. Obviously, it stuck sticks with so many readers. Um, I prefer not to. I prefer not to. And you just kind of so the other you can appreciate the frustration of the other characters in the story, right? Like, come on, come on. And in this, you're just awed that Andy's in jail and he's he's able to demonstrate this. He has a gift, you know. That's the in craft terms what. Andy is this the quintessential fly in the ointment, right? When he goes to the castle, mm-hmm. castle. I am with my castle. <laughs> prison, prison. When he gets to the prison, he has this extra skill, this gift, this education, this experience in tax codes, right? So that makes him different from everybody else. And then he figures out a way, um, you know, to to show off that gift in a way that becomes useful and separates him from the rest and enables him to. Um, you know, get the privileges that he needs to have in order to do to enact his escape. Yeah, it's worth pointing out that this is based on a Stephen King story. It's actually a, a, a story called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, which came out in the early 80s in a book called Different Seasons, which interestingly had a sto- also had a story called The Body, which became Stand By Stand. Me. Right. So, so within, within 10 or 12 years of that book coming out, um, it really created two classic non-horror Stephen King movies. Let's look at the at the drama as it takes place. There's two main characters, Andy and Red, and I'm curious to know which one you think is the protagonist. Um, and then how how does the movie introduce those characters to us? How do we come to trust Andy and Red as as the as the emotional heart of this movie? Um, it's interesting to say that. Um, people say that Red's the main character, and it's interesting to note that Morgan Freeman was nominated for lead, best lead actor in the Oscars in 1996, I think. Um, so I guess that's an easy way to say he's he's the main character. Um, and he does, well, he does change, you know, if the basic um, tenet of screenwriting, right, is that your main character has to change. I say that's true of both Andy and Red. And I almost think um, I'm, I'm literally thinking out loud about this because I've, it, you know, in the old days, I would say for sure this was Andy's movie. I mean, it's Andy's movies. You watch him. You, you and but now I actually I I question even whether it's that is a viable route to to go down because I think both of those I think it's a movie about Red and Andy and Red tells the story of Andy maybe in some ways like the narrator you know like Nick Carraway talks about Gatsby or whatever right it's through mm-hmm. Red's voice that we understand um, Andy's backstory and and you know who he is and how the prison is run and how the other prisoners see Andy etc um, and I I just wonder if the you know the they this movie works because of the two characters um, and their specific relationship amongst everybody else. So um, anyway, but what, it, you know, it is, Red definitely positions himself as the cagiest of all, the cagiest and the, you know, old, old, what do they call it? The old, old OG or whatever, <laughs> the old man of the prison. And he, um, you know, whereas Andy's the new guy, and that's often a really great, 
way to introduce characters, right? You have this established group of people and then someone enters. Um, I think, I, let me back up. You, One of the things um, that you, you just asked me about the beginning of the movie and how we're meant to understand Andy, is that correct? Yeah. Right. So remember in the beginning, um, and, and I think this is, it's just masterful. And again, it's kind of my, uh, to me speaks to this inverted fairy tale. The judicial system com- is completely warped. It's completely upside down if you just look at the trial of Andy Dufresne. And the way you know that Frank Darabont, the writer of the screenplay, wants that is he, when he describes the jurors, um, you know, deliberating on the guilt of Andy Dufresne, he mentions that there's like grease from the fried chicken dripping down the jurors' faces. Mm. It's it's a particularly like just you know repugnant take on these on these jurors, right, of his peers. And when you think of it, it there are we have seen so many movies, right, uh, vigilante movies. If and let's say Andy even did kill them, we know he didn't. But let's say Andy killed his wife was cheating on him with a golf pro. In most Hollywood movies, that would be seen as a reason to enact violence on the you know his his wife and her lover. But in this case, the judge you know the judge is like, you strike me as a particularly icy and remorseless man, Andy, Mr. Dufresne, you know, and I sentence you to two consecutive life terms. And so it, it again, it just, to me, it just turns everything upside down in the way they present. Tim Robbins in the movie and Andy Dufresne, right? He is just this very Bartleby-esque, like he doesn't get riled. He doesn't, you know, become dramatic or emotional. He's just very clear. He incriminates himself. He talks about how, yes, I did have a gun. Yes, I did go to the cabin. Yes, 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 right? Hmm. Um, and all of that, so that's how we meet him. And and I just think as, as inveterate moviegoers, we watch that scene and we're like, well, would he be that honest? Would he, would he, you know, would someone who really killed these people, would he be speaking this way? But again, I just think it's all a trick of the, um, you know, I just think it's the perspective of the writer and how he's chosen to tell the story that right from the, be- I, I, for me, when I saw the grease of the fried chicken on their chins, I was like, oh boy, <laughs> this, this is stacking the deck so we don't like the, the jurors. Right. Yeah. These are jurors who, who clearly they've gone out to get their free lunch food before they rendered the verdict and they, they, they spent their time eating sloppily before they came to, to deliver the guilty verdict. Right. I think it's – and that comes from the Stephen King story and, it, and it's interesting how you were talking about Red being a, a big candidate for the protagonist, it's really told very strongly from his point of view in the Stephen King story. And we can talk a little bit about how uh, the Darabont movie diverges from the Stephen King story. In a way, it has to, because uh, the story has cinematic elements, but isn't necessarily cinematic. And, and Darabont really made some masterful choices in, in converting it to screen. So in a way, it's still sort of told through uh, Red's point of view, through his through Morgan Freeman's wonderful voiceover. Um, yes. But then you also have these elements that aren't in the, the short story or very briefly in the short story, like the fresh fish scene at the beginning of the movie. So yes, in, yes. in the book, Red is just sort of reflecting on his long uh, relationship with Andy, whereas in the movie – you see the the bus coming in. People are chanting fresh fish to these terrified prisoners. And in, in the book, it's mentioned like 50 pages in, like half a paragraph that sometimes, you know, new prisoners are intimidated. But in this situation, we see the other half of this platonic couple, Red, betting against Andy when he rolls in. Yes, yes, yes. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Because he, 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 first of all, that engages us, right? If we like Red, which we do, 
because a he's Morgan Freeman and B he has that voice right so we right. like him right. and he as soon as he you know and he how do how do dramatists have to engage a, a reader slash viewer well he's immediately focusing like I'll take that guy I'll bet against him he's gonna break tonight right so we're invested immediately uh, we just want to see if he's gonna break that it's that and then Red can come back with that rejoinder like that was the first time or so he, he says something about like. Um, you know, he basically saying I misjudged Andy not for the first time. Yeah. And he's right, you know, because Andy is this other, he's just this different kind of, of person, different kind of human. There, there's so many times where Darabont will take uh, the, the Stephen King story, which is really sort of this old, old type of narrative where one guy sort of reflects on his relationship with another guy and sort of speaks for him. And he dramatizes so much. I mean, the, the story, the Stephen King story, has three different wardens. Uh, Hadley is not employed by the jail the whole time. Um, and then you have, like, Brooks is, is, becomes a mini-drama in the main movie, but he's only mentioned in passing, and he's actually not the person who owns da- Jake. Uh, so yes. What are some what are some moves being familiar with with both the Stephen King story and the script where Darabont really comes in and as a filmmaker makes choices that that make this one of the one of the better movies in recent memory? Yeah, well, I um, well, so many things, but I, I if we're talking about the those characters of Brooks and um, who was the other one you said Brooks uh, and. Well, Brooks and Tommy get their own mini dramas. Yes, yes, yes. Brooks and Tommy. Sorry. Um, you know, it's in, one of the themes I think of the short story is this idea of rehabilitation, right? And what it what and whether that's possible, and then institutionalization, right? What happens when you're in the prison for so long? And that's pre- that's exemplified via Brooks, right? So I feel like he he Darabont took you know you reread and reread and reread and reread the novella, and he he. I think I, I'm just guessing, but he saw this whole theme that Red would talk about all the time. This idea, um, again in the novella, that the institution changes you and you grow to um, not it, it not only hardens you, but it also um, makes you you know you know when you can go to, you have to ask to go to the bathroom and you know when you're going to eat and you know when you're going to sleep and you know when you have your job and when you have to come back. And over years and years and years and the dehumanization that happens, at least as described in the novella, that when you're out in the real world, you just can't that, you know, they take all your good years so that when you leave, you're already, uh, you know, on the declining side of the, the life cycle. And then you have, you know, Brooks. And that's I, I, so I think he wanted to show Brooks and and Red are the, you know, are both. Uh, released right in in the story in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I think Darabont knew that red had to be at the end of the movie free and not and we didn't want again this is they're going to be end up with these two two guys in mexico right and um so if that uh has to happen then he wanted to show the other side of this institutionalization and that's why he made he gave the bird to to brooks and again this is just my opinion and then just how and then brooks having to to kill himself at the end and then Tommy, I mean, Tommy's a big, big departure from, um, you know, what happens to Tommy in the movie is different, much different from the from the novella. And again, I think, gosh, if I had to say, I would say, I think that's almost the most masterful part, actually, the most, uh, the biggest change, because it really, 
makes a clear definitive visual choice on how of depicting how evil the the warden is the you know the bible thumping warden because he, don't you think that like he just what he does to, in the novel they just relocate you know they just reassign uh tommy yeah, um, the fate of the fate of all those characters is very different in in the book than uh, than in the movie. Uh, I mean, uh, Tommy is just transferred to a minimum security prison right. to sort of to get out of the scenario. Brooks kills himself in the movie, but in the book he just sort of dies of old age, even though he's right, dejected. Right. And then we're sort of getting ahead of things here. But the warden <laughs> in, in the in the in the movie the the warden um, kills himself. Whereas in the book, oh, he's, yes. he's, he's just transferred, he's transferred away. So in a way, Darabont is pretty brutal with King's characters, that, that King, the master of horror, <laughs> he keeps all of these people alive. But in the movie, suddenly, another, another thing Darabont does is he does a lot of double duty. Um, so in a way, the mini drama of Brooks, it feels to me, really illustrates what's at stake for Red. And the mini drama of Tommy uh, illustrates what's at stake for uh, for Andy yeah. if he plays by the rules. You know um, that that it, it it shows it shows hope for Andy, and hope is a big theme here. But it also shows how corrupt and terrible the prison is, and and so it just feels like there's a lot of times where Darabont does some great double duty, where he's doing he's doing character work at the same time that he's doing plot work, um, and in fact. There's, I don't know if you teach this in your class, but he, this is a story that takes place over the course of about 20 years, and Darabont does some really interesting things in advancing time, which again, the Stephen King story is just, it's all told as a recollection, and time doesn't really matter narratively, but it's like Darabont sneaks time shifts in on us. Like at one point, we see the the sisters are brutalizing Andy, and then he says, the first two years were the worst. Well, there's two years. Like, we, like we're learning about the character. We're we're we're, getting, we're feeling empathy for Andy, but at the same time, we're feeling sympathy for Andy. But at the same time, we're moving forward in the story. It also happens. Gosh, um, like when he when Andy starts the library and he starts sending letters. That that sort of shifts time in the story. Um, and the Inside Out program it sort of underscores the the corruption of the prison while moving time forward in the story. So it feels like Darabont just did a masterful job of doing double duty, of, of moving time and, and illustrating character or of hitting plot points while at the same time illustrating multiple things about characters. Yes, absolutely. And and he's choosing, you know, exceedingly visual moments, to, you know, like having Andy, not, he didn't write just one letter, he wrote lots and lots of letters. And, that, and also the posters, obviously, are another way to indicate the passage of time via the different women That's in the... That's true. And, and Red's parole hearings, I guess Red has three parole yes. hearings and yes. then Andy has those posters. But then there's, there's these much subtler ways of, of, of projecting time as well. Um, one thing that Stephen King does, like in the story, he talks about like the, the WPA concrete. He like explains why yes. the concrete was <laughs> diggable, right? And then he also does something that I found interesting. And he sort of read in the, in the Stephen King novella, he speculates on Andy getting caught and it's something I'm curious to know your thought. It's something that, that maybe we don't even think about as 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 viewers because there's a sort of a suspension of disbelief in movies, perhaps. But he's like thinking, well, what if what if Andy has to change cells, right? Or what if when they when they're tossing cells, they check behind the poster for a, a, a contraband marijuana joint or something? And so yeah, yeah. King spends all this time in the story basically justifying how 
how Andy can get away with digging a tunnel behind a poster. And in the movie, we, we don't get it at all. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah. Um, well, I think it is one of the, um, I think you're exactly right with the suspension of disbelief, right? We watch these movies and we, we don't, um, you know, is it feasible? Does it make sense that he really spent all those years and was never like, if we, you know, if we put it under a microscope, you know, we're, it's not, I don't think it's going to, hold true. I think it's just, it, you know, we'll be like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Somebody, you know, he had that in the novella, he has the roommate for eight months mm. and gives us the clue, right? Like it's drafty in there. It's really drafty in there, you know, because right. there's a hole developing behind the poster and, and also this idea of the concrete, like what, what, um, I think like it's so for the people who haven't read the novella, um, there's something about the weakness of the main concrete, right? Isn't that what he's talking about? Or yeah, something? it's like the it was the Works Progress Administration project, and they didn't mix the concrete right. I mean, King really goes to the trouble of explaining how how Andy was able to dig out, right? Like he, he he's covering his bases in, in some interesting ways, um, you know, in, including the explanation for why Andy was never caught with uh, with that tunnel behind his poster. Uh, and so I think that could be a matter of medium that, you know, in the novel for it to be yes. believable, he has to um, he has to explain certain things. Whereas in the movie, we just sort of we're along for the ride and we're so delighted when we learn late in the movie that Andy has been digging a tunnel behind his poster. We're so delighted that it exists that we don't really think about the concrete. Right. Um, I think that is true. And I also think, you know, the, the reason one of the reasons that the payoff is so wonderful is because he has never deviated. He has always been this cautious, meticulous, incredibly patient man, right? The mm-hmm. character of Dufresne. So, you know, as viewers and we're like, oh, the only person, you know, nobody can make that work. But if someone were to make it work, it would be somebody exactly like Andy, you know, yeah. spending all those years and years and, and um, just digging and digging. There's there's something extraordinary about it, too, because like in the book, actually, Red's, Red talks about how there's been 400 attempted escapes and at least 10 successful ones. Uh, and it feels like that just like in the movie, why would we care about that? You know, it just seems so extraordinary what Andy has done that um, that all of this all of this backstory that King felt obligated to include gets thrown away uh, just for the, the raw um, drive of the story itself. Now, one thing, another thing, another big scene that, that happens in the movie that doesn't exist at all in the book is the Mozart scene. Um, when, yes, when when Andy yes. locks a guard in the bathroom and plays Mozart over the loudspeaker and the whole prison comes to a standstill. Why do you think Darabont put that one in the script? You know, I, I wanted to research that before this call, actually, because I I think it's brilliant. I love, you know, I, it, you know when you watch them, that's, I think, pretty much exactly the midpoint of the movie. And... I just I think it's just a stroke of genius, right? To have that the wonderful music, that you know the whole idea. This is Andy before his own hope is dashed, right? The one mm. thing he's able to retain for himself, and you are supposed to. There is something um, in you know it's it, intrinsically selfless about Andy, although he's totally aware. He's shrewd about how the prison works and everything like that. So that's why I object to like I don't see him as a saint or anything, but I. You know, he did want everybody, just like he, it seemed to me, you watch the movie and and you genuinely believe that he wants the uh, inmates to have access to a thriving library. He wants them to hear this extraordinary music of hope and he's willing to go out on that limb, you know, to to do it. 
at whatever risk. And, and in this case, the solitary, right? Like he's going to do it. Yeah. Um, and actually the first time that we learn that Andy isn't totally a Bartleby style weirdo is on when they're tarring the roof of the prison and um, Andy at very, at a very high risk to himself, um, you know, offers financial help to Hadley uh, and then then uh, request beers, but doesn't drink any beers, right? So that's actually something that's pretty much true to the Stephen King story. That wasn't invented by Darabont, but it feels like it's a, it's an it's an instant where we're, instance like the Mozart scene where we realize that there's more to Andy than just his meticulousness. That there's a there's a big heartedness to him. Yes, yes, absolutely, and a love of beauty. It seems like to you know even with the rocks, like for yes, he needed the rock hammer to tunnel, but he wanted he was really. I mean, I don't think that was a thing. I think he loved to, the character loves to make, you know, beautiful things. Yeah, and actually in, in the story, this is sort of, I'm sort of fixating on the story, probably just because I just read it. Um, Andy actually gives it's, Red his carvings. He doesn't give him a harmonica. He gives him his carvings. And, and you can see why he would give him, why Darabont would choose to have him give a harmonica, because that sort of represents the dreams that Red has given up. Um Yes, but it's actually it's actually a little bit more thoughtful to to make these special carvings for Red. Yes, he's. I mean, Andy. You know, it is an interesting. It's so funny to think about what you know. I wonder. Like, I did read this um, the prologue to. So there's a published version of the screenplay, and uh, Stephen King writes the foreword to it, huh. and he has this interesting comment that in it that I'll just read to you if that's okay. Can I read you just Absolutely. what he thinks about his um, story? So he said, um, Frank wrote in about 1987, Frank Darabont wrote Stephen King and asked if he could option one of the novellas from different seasons, a prison break story in the grainy old Warner Brothers, Jimmy Cagney mold. It came with a clunky, unlikely moniker of Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. And I told Frank, sure, almost casually. I never in a million years thought he would get the film made. But I did want to see what sort of screenplay he could possibly generate for the story, which has plenty of visual elements, but is on the whole a whole lot less visual than novels such as Firestarter. Firestarter, sorry. Shawshank Redemption actually owes a lot to Max Brand, who wrote the Dr. Kildare novels and a number of wonderful westerns. Brand had a trick of having his plain spun narrator say, I want to tell you about this amazing friend of mine, and then telling you all modest and unaware about himself. I had always loved this technique of creating a hero out of a secondary character and determined to try it with Shawshank Redemption. The result was a moody tale with more thinking than action in it not the sort of thing that usually makes a good movie. What I should have remembered, however, is that it is the sort of thing that every now and then makes a great movie. So anyway, I, that's from Stephen King himself. <laughs> yeah, there's actually a, a, another backstory there that might be included in that introduction, but Stephen King has always had this habit of like um, licensing his, his, his short stories for a dollar, to beginning. His dollar babies, his dollar babies, it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, so uh. like a beginning filmmaker for a dollar can earn the rights to the story, although Stephen King, I guess, keeps the rights to the to the cassette itself, to the movie itself. And so Darabon, as a student, um, made, yeah, a, made a short little movie of, of a Stephen King story and apparently was like the best rendering ever. Obviously, Darabont has now, is now a famous uh, director. But um, so... What an interesting person Stephen King is to sort of to to just allow beginning filmmakers to 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 work with his stories for a dollar, and then I think without that gesture, the Shawshank Redemption might not exist because that's how Darabont got to know Stephen King. 
Yeah, exactly. And I always tell, I actually know about this backstory and I, I always talk about it in my classes because I think it's an, a wonderful example of initiative as well. Um, you know, that Frank Darabont obviously was a Stephen King fan, as so many people are, and he read the short stories and he figured out that Stephen King had this dollar deal or dollar babies thing. I don't think he does it anymore, actually. But for the longest time, I mean, just think of it, any film student, anybody could option it for a dollar for only two, you know, with the um, guarantee that you're not going to have it exhibited in a theater and that he got to see it. That's it. <laughs> That's like with one of you know the most prolific storytellers alive. I, I, he must be a wonderful. I actually love. His, I read his Twitter feed all the time, and I think he's really funny and great. So, and I love his book on writing as well. So, um, I'm a fan. <laughs> I'm definitely a fan of Stephen King. I, I am too. In fact, I um, my aunt uh, when I was a teenager gave me one of his books, which I probably, which my parents probably wouldn't have given me like a horror book. But um, I started reading stories just because they'd been made into movies, and they were so delightful. And and so. My, the first stories I ever wrote as a writer were like Stephen King-style horror stories when I was 13. Oh. And even though I, I've never published anything remotely horror-like, Stephen King was an important part of my development as a writer because he got me excited about writing at a time where I decided to, 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 to imitate him. So I think Stephen King is, is a very beloved person, and he's obviously a big part of the story of not just the original story of this movie, but how it got made. Um, and Absolutely. It, it, yeah. it, it occurs to me that... Um, there's just so many masterstrokes on Darabont's adaptation because in the story, um, there's this character called Jim. I don't know if you remember this in the in the novella that basically uh, one of Andy's old war buddies, a guy oh, named yeah, yeah, yes, yes, a, yes, a guy named Jim, sets up like the fake um, Peter Stevens identity, right? Um, and just how hard would that be for a filmmaker to illustrate, like an old buddy working outside the the jail who later dies and can't help him anymore? And so what Darabont does is he has – he just takes out Jim and he has the warden be the one who, who is laundering the money through the character – through this fake persona uh, of, of Peter Stevens. I think in the script – in the movie it's actually called Randall Stevens. Um, and again, I was talking about how Darabont does double and triple duty. In that way, he's able to make – this sort of somewhat clunky old war buddy character who launders money for for right. Andy outside the jail, he makes it a part of the drama that basically, in a way, the warden has to kill himself at the end because he's he's so implicated um, when when Andy goes out and becomes Randall Stevens when when he escapes. Well, he has that great book too, right? That he's been putting all the you know that he has all the. Um the guilt you know he, he he's totally framed the warden which is just mm. another wonderful part of the story um yeah well you know it's incumbent upon any screenwriter who's adapting a novella or a novel or anything right you have to extract those moments and those characters and those events right that kind of in a themat for a thematic purpose first um, and then plot reasons, and then you go back and you figure who you can consolidate and how you can make these their um, you know whatever their events in the script in the I'm sorry this original material, how to make that as visual and decisive and you know as possible right so that's I think that anybody who adapts anything as a screenplay has to know you know that that's part of the job for sure. Um, a good example is people often thought that the original, the first two Harry Potter movies were, um, did not, you know, they were fine and functional, but they were trying to be too 
um, loyal to the source material, whereas the the subsequent Harry Potter movies really got the essence of the story right, but did miss some you know some of the events from the not from the books. And I feel like that's what Darabont did so well. Like he he kind of figured out what was the story King wanted to talk about these two guys, the idea of institutionalization and the idea of hope, just to kind of summarize. And he then said, okay, how am I like, you know, how am I going to extract that in this dramatic form, you know, in this three act structure, in this kind of, um, you know, this paradigm of dramatic storytelling that's going to have this amazing payoff at the end. And, and he did. And obviously he chose really well. No question. Yeah, he really he takes like in the short story, there's hope is a is, is sort of how it ends. It ends on this note of hope. But hope really suffuses the whole movie. As does friendship, which is not as present in, in in the short story. That really, they become this family. You know, Brooks is almost a grandfather character, a tragic grandfather character, and then Red and Andy are, are sort of these these um, parents ish. <laughs> yeah, these, these parents of this of this ragtag family uh, in in prison, and it, it just seems like um, yeah, you know, I, there's a cliche that says that books are always better than the movie, right? Um, and it, and it could be the reason why novellas like this one or, or short stories um, uh, often make really effective movies. I, what was it? Brokeback Mountain was a short story, I think. Um, yes, just, yes. Just because you don't have to dig into all of the granular details of a very long novel that you can pick certain aspects. And it occurs to me that in that scene, you know, not only does Andy, um, it, without having this outside Jim character, he he implicates the warden for his crimes, he also steals his clothes. Like Andy gets out of prison um, and there's all these scenes where the warden is making him shine his shoes and launder his shirts, you know, not too much starch this time. And that is a very smart way of setting up and making his escape more convincing, that he basically escapes in the warden's clothes, which is not something that was in the Stephen King story. Right. It's just, and it's so visual, right? Like you feel like cheering when you're watching the movie and you see him and you see that Tim Robbins go into the bank at the end. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're like, oh my gosh, this is so fantastic. Cause you, we, you know, and I often talk about balance as a, you know, like um, in my screenwriting classes and it's just equal. Like we hate our, our feeling of triumph when we see um, Andy as Randall go into the bank equals how much we despise the warden you know we just that man he like especially after he kills tommy and everything and but the whole hypocrisy with his bible etc it's just i feel like there's such a whatever that the greeks talked about right you feel that amazing like oh yes this is how it should work out yeah and i think darabont picked the right warden there's three wardens in the book and he picked the religious hypocrite yes yes Um, uh, of all of all the characters, and so I think that just adds to the satisfaction. And Stephen King, as a writer, often uh, depicts religious hypocrites. I'm not sure why what happened to Stephen King as a young man coming up, but he he often illustrates very vividly in different stories um, certain religious hypocrisies. And so there's there's nothing. This warden is just is just horribly evil in his in his fake piety. Um, right. And right. and you know that there's that payoff. It's it's like. Um, it's funny. We we this this conversation has been absolutely chock full of spoiler alerts. But, yeah. <laughs> but in a way, there's that you there's that first time you watch the movie when you have no idea what Andy has been doing, and and I think it's it's a testament to the strength of these characters that 
when you watch the movie for the tenth time and you know exactly what's going to happen, you love these characters and you hate other ones so much that it's still a satisfying movie to watch, even though the main plot secret has been already given away. Revealed, right? Absolutely. You know, it is a it is so gratifying when, and I think. I don't remember. I think every student who has read it, and this is now over like a thousand students, right? They just, they're just odd. They just think like, oh my gosh, this is, you know, and I, they, I always talk about writing, you know, it's just words on a page, right? It doesn't matter who you are, if you're Frank Darabont or Stephen King or whoever the student is, right? It's the same thing, blank page, you have to put words on it. And, um, and yet he's able to really make, I mean, the writing in the script is just fantastic too. It's just, he's really... Um, he, he's just wonderful in every way. What do you have you ever been surprised by your students' observations, or, or what what do your students grab onto, and and how do they watch that movie, especially this this new generation who was born after the movie came out? Right. Well, today's students, you know, it's it's kind of hard um, movies that you know are always also on that top ten list: Chinatown and Godfather and Raging Bull. Those are really slow for at least my students. I mean, they just move slowly. They are absolutely not accustomed to watching those movies. And, you know, when I put them on a syllabus and they come into class and, you know, it's it's hard um, and just in general for me to pretend, you know, I, I'm not very coy about whether I like something or not. Hmm. And the students are always... Um, you know, I can tell that they want to say, oh, this is slow or, you know, the Godfather slow in the opening. That wedding goes on forever. Um, with Shawshank Redemption, though, I don't get that. I don't. Get, now, granted, that's 20 years after those, the, you know, Godfather, et cetera, those movies. But it's um, it seems like one of those movies that students, it, it, you know, it's what's so hard today is that students watch everything on their, you know, their phones or their you know laptops. Right. Mm-hmm. So. And you're, they're constant. It's very hard to get into that room, you know, like room and everybody be quiet and be engrossed in a movie because you're always being distracted by your friends or or whatever pizza coming or something. Um, but with Shawshank, it seems to work despite those distractions. And because kids, as you know, ever since its opening, it wasn't a success in the theater. It's only a success, you know, on these alternative um, forms of of delivering uh, a movie. So it. It, I think it says something about the storytelling that it's able to keep their interest. And they love the script. They love the script. Yeah, yeah. I think there's something really universal about about the story and, and the way it makes you feel because it really, again, it's, it's, a, it's a weird thing that the critics didn't pinpoint it as this, as this great, you know, um, evergreen movie when it came out, but it was actually people, it was normal people putting their vote in at the internet database that put it up there along with Star Wars and The Godfather and Citizen Kane and, and, and all of these other movies. So, okay. so, I'm, so I'm curious, we've, we've, we've unpacked many elements of the story. Um, will it continue to be a classic and, and why? Oh, gosh, this is when my age interferes with my judgment, I, I suspect. But I hope the answer, I hope it does. Today, you know, gosh, it, it is re- it's in the best possible way, right? We're getting all kinds of different stories being told, which is fantastic um, for it's just necessary and por- important. And, um, and we're learning about all different kinds of, of audiences and populations out there. That's great. 
So I'm saying that because a movie about a prison in 19, you know, from 1947 to 1975 um, with two male leads and all men in the entire story, you know, that's that's not um, it'll be interesting to see if they hold up. I think I I can't tell. I personally, my generation, um, I'm 52. They you know, we love it. I think. Um, you know, I don't know my son, I have a 14 year old son and I, you know, he hasn't seen it yet, but maybe I'll have him watch it and get a better sense. I hope so. I think the elements of a good story, I, I reassure myself that it seems to me that the elements of a good story are still what is important to my students. Um, and I just hope that, and if that's the case, then I think, I think that Shawshank should, should remain where it's been. I, you know, I think so. Stories have always hinged, their effectiveness has always hinged on their specificity going back hundreds of years. And even though this is a very male movie, like I think the, the most female lines there are is like in the grocery store. <laughs> in one yes. Of those, in one of those scenes where, where Brooks is bagging groceries. And so there's really no female perspective, but I feel like it's a movie that women can love because in a way we forget about things like gender and, and race and, and other big categories and we grab onto this idea of hope and that regardless of, of who we are, we can and maybe 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 your son will see something different, but it feels like people of, of all ages and backgrounds get drawn into this story about hope and they can relate to their own ambitions and hopes. I, I gosh, would that, I hope that that is, I hope to use the word, I hope it's true. I mean, it is, you know, these two guys end up, it's a happy ending. It's a happy ending movie, <laughs> which about a prison breakup, breakout, you know, it, it's so, and it's not a comedy. It's, it's a drama straight through and it still has a happy ending. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to the Shawshank Redemption and the writing of Kathy Van Cleve, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs>